I once saw Margaret Atwood give a talk where she said that there are only four types of books. A good book that does well, a good book that does badly, a bad book that does well, and a bad book that does badly. And I remember that Atwood liked those odds. You'd be happy with three out of four of those options, she said. We all want the writers we love to take wild swings, to be bold and experimental, but taking risks means sometimes failing. And as a culture, we generally don't talk about failure. Before, any time I walked into a bookstore, I was just like, this place smells great. Here are all the things I might read. And it feels like you're among friends. And then after you publish your first book and it fails, you walk into a bookstore and it seems like a completely different place than like the other books that are the bestsellers that are piled up on the table are mocking you. And the store doesn't even smell as good anymore. That's the voice of Gabrielle Zevin. Back in 2005, following the publication of her debut novel, the author experienced a kind of literary trauma, one that completely fractured her sense of intimacy with the art form that she loved. None of us relish the idea of that kind of debilitating failure. But by any measure, looking back, Gabrielle Zevin is a success story. Ten books, New York Times bestsellers, legions of fans. At some point, she learned how to integrate the disappointments with the successes. Gabrielle Zevin learned not to fear failure, but instead to embrace it. It's a compelling idea and one of the linchpins of her latest novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, one of my favourite books of the year. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams. This is Read This, a show about the books we love and the failures behind them. I really didn't expect to like Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow as much as I did. It's about video games and the people who make them, a topic that, to be brutally honest, leaves me a bit cold. But as anyone who plays a lot of games will tell you, it's a world with a different attitude to failure. Die, respawn, play again. So it makes sense that for a book focused on two friends and creative collaborators working out how to succeed and fail together video games would provide a powerful backdrop. And Gabrielle Zevin's clear that when it comes to her latest book, games are part of the story, but not the whole story. I would say that it's about love, art, video games, and time. And then I know that that's a bit vague, so I'll add that it's about Sadie Green and Sam Mazur, who have a 30-year friendship and artistic collaboration. They're the most important people in each other's lives, but they don't fall into any of the usual categories for most important person in your life. You know, they're not mothers and children, and they're not lovers, and they're not husbands and wives or brothers and sisters. They're colleagues, and they are friends. And and I think in a way, their relationship poses an impossible puzzle for them. Like, what would you do if the most important person in your life was really your colleague and your friend? Um, to me, the book is essentially about the difficulty of connecting, even though we have ever-increasing ways to connect. I'm really interested in how rarely you read about that kind of intimacy that you're writing about, you know, that we are culturally kind of attuned to prioritise romantic love, prioritise sexual love. You know, some of the great loves of my life are my friends. And part of what's embedded in that is the ways in which they can shit you to tears and you can be at odds as often as you're kind of getting along or whatever, but that charge is the thing that kind of creates real intimacy. 
How much was that the kind of kernel at the start of this book? In a way, you have many, many little seeds and they all grow, (laughs) you know. And so the first seed has something to do with video games and the fact that the first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 1970s and 80s. And uh, so you have an entire, like, history of video games that actually parallels the history of my own life. And so you have kind of this coming of age of an artist story that's also the coming of age of an industry. To me, uh, that was interesting. But I will say, you know, you can have an idea. And if characters and sort of emotions and feelings don't attach themselves to that idea, you have nothing. You just have a sterile idea. I have begun to be frustrated, I think, with the ways in which society devalues every kind of love except the one that results in marriage and children, Mm. you know. And in a way, it makes me really sad because we have all kinds of love in our life, but we're kind of told there's only one that counts. And so I think I wanted to write about that. I've been in a relationship for 30 years or something like that. And it hasn't involved marriage and it hasn't involved children. It's involved creative collaboration and it's involved friendship and it's involved love and intimacy and all of those things. And so in a sense, I think that was a theme that I had in the back of my mind. I sort of, again, just let Sam and Sadie evolve organically. Like they don't have the relationship that my partner and I have. And I didn't have necessarily a horse in how the thing turned out. But I have found over the years, again, Really, it's like 99% of stories sort of lead to the same point. And I really personally, as a reader, feel a hunger for stories that don't lead to that point. I I think that's one of the things that's so exhilarating about reading this book is the way in which it resists those rhythms. I read online that you and your partner have collaborated creatively before. And at the heart of this intense relationship in this book Creative collaboration is one of the big themes, what it is to make something to feel that sense of kind of proprietorial, even parental pride in it with another person. That seems to me a fascinating theme and one that I can't remember having read uh, so beautifully laid out. I feel like there are a couple of books that deal with creative relationships, but not a ton. Or even if you extend that to work relationships, you have something like Remains of the Day by Ishiguro. Um, there was a book called The Animators by mm. Kayla Ray Whitaker that was about two uh, women in an animation collaboration, um, which I thought was quite a good book. <laughs> Mostly in books, what people make or don't make is babies. They don't really make or don't make art. It is the first book where you've written about characters with your own cultural racial background. How was that a different writing process for you to do that? Was that a very deliberate thing? Was that part of an evolution of who you are as a writer and what you felt comfortable playing with? It was an evolution, I think, in so far as, again, when I started out, I thought that the creative freedom came in the distance between me and the person I was writing about. If you didn't think it was me, then I could do anything with that person. And it began to seem to me that there was a possibility that I could position a person like myself at the center of a narrative. And that was really exciting to me. You know, Sam talks about it. Um, He's half Jewish and half Korean. I'm half Jewish and half Korean. He talks about how to be half of two things is to be whole of nothing. And I think for a long time, I felt like that. You know, I was raised in a town that was mostly Jewish. And when I went to places that were predominantly Asian, my whole way of writing stories and the kind of stories I would have written would have been different if I had been able to position myself at the center of a narrative. I would have seen myself differently. 
And so in a way, I think it took a long time for me to get there. Some of it was the courage of the pandemic. You know, I started writing the book in 2018, just had Sam and Sadie on a train platform, and I couldn't get them off of it in a way. And one of the things the pandemic, though, did for me, and maybe for many people, is you kind of think, if the world's about to end, what do I want to have written? What do I want to have done? And so the one thing I kind of kept coming to was I really wanted to get these two people off a train platform, (laughs) you know. And I had this quiet. It was almost like writing my first novel again because when I wrote my first novel, and I think this is true for everyone, you have a sense that you are alone in a process. But every novel after that, you're aware of an audience and a reader. But when I went to write this novel, the 10th novel, I, for the first time, could kind of feel like the audience was less present, you know, and in a way, the characters were more present to me. And some people have asked me kind of like, what is the particular, I say this in all humility, but the particular sort of like magic of these characters. And I think it might be that I was so very alone with them. (laughs) They felt a bit more real, maybe, because of that, you know, it was my partner, and these fictional people, and that was my pandemic. (laughs) It's fascinating to hear from different creative people how that kind of isolation or how that break in routine either helped or hindered their process. I'm interested because so much of the story for Sadie and Sam is about that act of creating and that act of making art. How much are you revealing of your own approach to the creative process? You know, are they like you in the way they regard it? Or is it completely different because it's an art form that requires a heavier form of collaboration? They are very much like me. When people think of video games, they think of maybe like Tetris or something. But in fact, a lot of games are more like novels, you know, and there's somebody who's telling a story. And and so once I kind of realized that, that video games could just be a form of storytelling. It became easier to see the ways in which my collaborative life, my creative process was like what Sam and Sadie were doing. And so in a sense, I would say the book reflects very much the way I think about work, particularly the way I used to think about work when I was in my 20s. That period of time when I wanted to be good more than I wanted to be nice, more than I wanted to be kind. To me, that's an interesting time of life and, and, and actually a time of life that's kind of skipped over in fiction. A lot of times we have a lot of stories about people and, you know, their teens. Maybe we have campus novels. But then that point when you're like 22, and I just remember feeling this at 21 and 22, when you're like, I have to make things happen now. And it's this false sense of urgency you have, but you think the nine years between 21 and 30, 30 is over. And, you know, I wanted to write about that. And then I really wanted to write about a thing I don't see a ton of, but I wanted to talk about failure, you know, and how much the failures have meant to me over the years. I think like any kind of good upper middle class girl, (laughs) I was terrified of being told I was bad or failing in public. But pretty much my first novel was a failure. And I remember thinking like, I'm walking around New York City and everybody knows that Gabrielle Seven's first novel has failed and they're all just like pointing at her and, you know, the guy in the grocery store is not going to want to sell her bagels. And and I remember feeling this strong sense of like failure, like a storm cloud over me. And what I realized, though, was that if I was going to keep doing this, I needed to learn how to live with it. And then over the years, I've 
had successes and failures, and I've become increasingly good at failing, by which I mean I understand that failure is a place where it gets really quiet and no one calls you, and then you can kind of think about the work you really want to do. You know, in a way, success is a disaster. (laughs) You know, you travel for a year and you don't think about, like, the work really, but failure can be super creative. Except that, at least in America, we're afraid of discussing it, you know. Everybody's life is a series of Instagram greatest hits. What kind of reader are you of your own work? When do you know when something's working? And is there stuff that you have felt worked that failed to connect with other people? Um, I would say I'm fairly relentless and unbearable as a reader. I think my special gift is that I can pass over something thousands of times. Um, the way I work is that I read every single bit of a book until the moment uh, that I'm writing something new for as long as I can. You know, So when a book starts to hit, like say, 400 pages, maybe you can't quite read all of that every day. But for many days, I will, You know, and as long as possible, I will. I find that like you have to kind of hold two senses of self when uh, you're any kind of creative person, you know, there has to be this person that is allowed to be incredibly vulnerable because otherwise, like, the work is no good. And then there has to be another person who is quite thick-skinned. And you have to sort of balance both of those people, I think, when you're moving into a new endeavor. What I found at a certain point was maybe um, that you just have to be really hopeful when you sit down to work that you could write something great um, while also being mindful of the fact that maybe you didn't. (laughs) You know, and so like kind of learning to do that. And again, I think kind of a gift I've been able to give myself is to allow kind of the person who writes to be really, really hopeful. And then at the other side of it, to be somebody who is able to uh, look at the work pretty hostily um, once it is done. Coming up, Gabrielle explains how the title for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow reflects one character's misreading of Shakespeare. Plus, we dig into the reality of commerce as a crucial part of the artistic process. We'll be right back. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. You don't need a deep acquaintance with the world of video games to enjoy tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But the building of this world is beautifully done. Sadie and Sam's collaboration on multiple games gives their personal and creative relationship extra tension, perhaps most notably in a game called Both Sides that explicitly draws on the two characters' individual strengths and separate experiences. For those who haven't read the book, one of the real delights in it is that you 
in meticulous detail create these worlds and create these games. You come up with the idea for the the engines behind them, uh, the aesthetic you describe so beautifully and clearly, and the storytelling power of them. Both sides in particular seems to me to speak to an interest in parallel storytelling. And again, if it's not just the divide between commerce and the creative, it's the divide between imaginative play and cold, hard pragmatism. You know, all those things seem to play out in that. Um, So most of the games, you know, just to speak a little bit about how I developed them, you know, they were a combination of looking and seeing what the technology would do at a certain point in time, looking at in a given year, what were the games that were bestsellers from kind of like what the technical limitations were of the time. And that kind of dictated a lot of what the games were going to be. And then really, I wanted the stories of each of the games to reflect uh, the things that were going on in the characters' lives. And so really, when we hit both sides, you know, you have Sam and Sadie, and they're living in two sides of LA. You know, he's living in Silver Lake, and she's living in Venice. And they're really separated. They're working on a game that has two entirely different kind of engines to it. Really, they are just as separate as they will be at any point. And so in a sense, it was a great metaphor for just where they were kind of personally. One of the things the book deals with, and I want to be careful not to kind of give too much away to those who haven't read it yet, is the nature of kind of residual trauma and also chronic pain and how to care for and love people who shut themselves off when they're in a state of, of pain. Was that an important part of Sam's character in particular? Yes. I mean, for both, I think, Sam and Sadie, when I was inventing these characters, I asked myself a particular question, which was, you know, who games, who benefits from gaming? And, you know, in Sadie's case, I think she benefits from gaming because her sister has cancer when she's a kid. And in a sense, games become a way for Sadie to escape mortality. And and for Sam, it's the same, but it's also one other thing, which is that he has a body due to a childhood accident that does not always function perfectly. You know, and so if you look at the sort of opening scene of the book, we have Sam and Sadie, they're in a train station, and actually we just have Sam first. And I want that scene to show just how difficult it is for Sam to navigate uh, that train station as a person who who does not have a body that always functions perfectly. And I think what I was trying to show is that for somebody like Sam, video games are easy, but the video game that is life is quite challenging. And so that was something that I thought about uh, the whole time I was writing uh, the Sam character. So the third key character in the book is Marx. And I'd like you to talk about him a bit because he seems to me to embody the kind of person all creative people need in their lives. You know, Sam and Sadie are erratic, they're creative, they're volatile, and they clearly need the presence of uh, Marx in their life. There's a famous Mike Nichols quote And it's about Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher. They were married briefly, and then they divorced. And upon hearing of their divorce, he said something like, too many flowers, not enough gardeners, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Yeah. (laughs) And so in a sense, I think uh, Marx is a gardener. Sam and Sadie are flowers. And we do need those people. I have been, again, a working artist for a really long time, and... 
I have seen plenty of artwork that it has a huge hostility toward anybody who is the business. And in a sense, this is not a useful stance. And I think in a way we have this like ingrained skepticism of people that represent the money or people that are not just like purely artists in some sense. But really to me, uh, the Marx character is about sort of this won't sound romantic at all, but it is about the reality of commerce as a part of art. You mm-hmm. know, and I think people when they're starting out as artists don't really think about the fact, I certainly didn't, that there has to be some way that the book makes it from my computer into a bookstore. And I, I wanted to write about that. And also I think like if you kind of look at the Marx character, so much of him is that he is really creative while being essentially a business person. You know, I think when Sadie begins to see Marx differently, it's because he has come up with a great creative business idea. And, you know, she begins to see him in a different way because of that. And and so I kind of wanted to talk about that, about the ways in which business, you know, when it's great, needs to be creative. For all Marx is, you know, the embodiment of goodness and smart and creative and an actor and all of that stuff, he is the one who brings up the Macbeth quote that gives the novel its name. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And it seems to me Marx fundamentally either deliberately or accidentally misunderstands that quote. He cites it as an example of, to use a computer game term, respawning, the way you get a chance to do things over again and again and again. But my memory is that that sits very differently in the play. Was that a deliberate choice to have that kind of hopeful misread? Yeah, it's 100% a deliberate choice. The tomorrow speech is one of the bleakest lines in all of Shakespeare. It occurs in Act 5 of Macbeth, and uh, nothing good happens in Act 5 of Macbeth. I always joke with people like, I'm about to spoil Macbeth for you. (laughs) And if you haven't read it now, it's too late. (laughs) But yeah, Macbeth you know, wife has died. He will probably not be at this point in the play uh, successful in his quest for power and things look pretty bad. And so it's a rumination on the bleakness of existence, but one of the most beautiful ones that has ever been. And it was the first bit of Shakespeare that I ever committed to memory. And I was definitely aware of when I was using it, that when Marx decides that it might be a good name for, instead of unfair games, he's kind of pitching the idea that it could be uh, tomorrow games instead, you know. And he's doing a great salesman's job of uh, saying that, like, hey, this really bleak part of Shakespeare um, would make for a, a great name for a game company. And I actually think it would be a great name for a game company because... The tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow has within it a metaphor for video games, which is kind of like the infinite restarts and the infinite chances of redemption. Have you rediscovered your love of the smell of bookshops? Has success and failure and success and satisfaction got you to a place where now you can read for pleasure again? (laughs) Well, I got to that place a long time ago. I'm I'm happy to report. But I think in a way, I can read in a really neutral way. And I don't think it just applies to books. But I think, again, when we're young, sometimes it seems like somebody else's success is your failure. But in fact, it's not. Only your failures are your failures. Once I kind of knew that, I I never had really a difficulty uh, losing myself in, in contemporary fiction, which is one of the great joys of my life. 
Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is available at all good bookstores now, and it's a perfect summer read. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, I don't want to alarm anyone, but we're about a month out from Christmas. I know, horrifying. So for each of the four final episodes of Read This for 2023, instead of recommending recent reads, I'm going to share the books on my own personal wish list. The books that, if all goes well, someone will buy me and they will form part of my personal summer reading list. First cab off the rank is the new Curly Saunders. If you don't know Curly's work, she's a brilliant poet and thinker and I'm a big fan. I've been eyeing off her new book, Returning, a combination of original artworks and new poems. And every time I pick it up in the bookshop, I think, no, wait for Christmas. And for my second pick, I've got a weakness for a particular kind of fat American novel about relationships in decay and existential crisis. They're always written by some talented creative writing graduate and are utterly forgettable. But a few years ago, I did enjoy one called The Nicks by Nathan Hill. He has a new one out, and all I know about it, apart from its title, Wellness, is it's more than 600 pages. Perfect for the Banana Lounge. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or, if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This reading room on Apple Books at apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. As ever, make sure you share it with the book lovers in your life. It helps us a lot. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.